0: Hi and welcome to Author Uncut. I'm your host and author Patrice williams Marks. Today I'll be reading chapter 12 of my revenge thriller, Counterpunch. But first, if you enjoy my podcast, I'd be so grateful if you spread the word by leaving a rating and a review author and cut can be found wherever you enjoy listening to your podcast rest in power george floyd Richard brooks and teen robert fuller here is a synopsis of counterpunch everest was not the perfect mom but what she was was fierce after her husband anthony died at the hands of a drunk driver it was up to her to raise their daughter mo alone her love for Mo was both unmistakable and unshakable. But when Mo failed to return home from swim practice with not so much as a text, Everest knew something was wrong. Will Everest find Mo in time to save her life? Better still, what will she do to the scumbag that brutalized her daughter? Make. Him. Pay. Chapter 12. The Follow-Up Detective Sanchez received over a dozen calls related to Moses assault case, yet none of them panned out. She worked with another detective along with Goodroy in hopes that a small piece of information would lead them to the break they were looking for. This case was important to her because it was tied to a broader crime wave, so she surmised. If she could close this case out, it would be a feather in her cap and the department's the victim getting closure would be a secondary concern. But the numbers were not in Sanchez's favor. Most assault cases that were reported did not lead to an arrest, much less a conviction. In fact, only one in five victims see an arrest. Those are the lucky ones. Detective Sanchez soon discovered that assault kits, which held crucial DNA evidence, may take months and even years to process. The backlog was astounding and allowed perpetrators to reoffend at will. So she had to think outside the box. She reviewed what the profiler had put together, along with information found on Forensic Psychology Online's website. Information gathered from a crime scene that can be used to create a criminal profile includes the time and day the crime occurred, the location, the type of crime, as well as the type of weapon used and the way it was used. Investigators also note the sex, age, and race of the victim or victims, which can, in turn, help them determine the sex, age, and race of a potential suspect. If there are multiple crimes with the same type of victim, this information can help investigators determine if the suspect or suspects had a possible grudge against a certain population, If any kind of sexual act took place during the crimes, this can lead profilers to look at suspects with a background as a sex offender or as a possible motive in the crime. Profilers also pay attention to trace evidence left at the scene, whether a crime scene appears to be staged, and whether or not tokens of the crime were taken by the suspect or suspects, all of which can tell them how sophisticated or experienced the suspect or suspects may be, as well as their possible level of education and background demographics. The more information that is gathered from a crime scene, the more accurately criminal profilers can create a profile, which in turn can make it easier to make sure they get the right person who actually committed the crime or crimes. Sanchez opened up all four files from cases she believed were related. There was little evidence left at the scenes other than the victim's clothing. Victims were of different ethnicities and varied in age. A gun was used on all victims. However, it was never shot, so they did not have ballistic evidence. What was known was the race and the approximate age of the attacker. He was an educated Caucasian man who may or may not have used his own vehicle in the commission of crimes. He used fictitious paper plates. His age range was between 45 to 55. He stood between 5 foot 9 and 5 foot 11. He was more than likely married with a managerial position that he's held for over 10 years. This was assumed because he had the flexibility to come and go during the day at will. He was meticulous and took his time removing any evidence from his person at the crime scene, except what was found on and in the victims. He was an arrogant son of a bitch who didn't need the cloak of darkness for his crimes. This was someone who thought very little of the police or the possibility of actually getting caught. But what Sanchez didn't have were answers to why he selected his victims. Had he scoped them out prior to approaching them? And what was his motive or fantasy for abducting, assaulting, and murdering his victims? These three answers seem more important to the cases than all the other answered questions from the profile. Detective Cummings knocked on the door to Sanchez's office and let himself in without waiting for a response. He plopped himself down in a seat directly across from Sanchez. He pulled out a toothpick from his shirt pocket and proceeded to scrape plaque off his front teeth. He inquired about any new leads on the cases. Sanchez asked him to pick his teeth elsewhere while she gave him the quick rundown on the profiler notes. Cummings sighed, looked at his watch, then sauntered out of the office looking for his lunch partner. Sanchez studied all the open files on her desk before realizing that Cummings may have helped her with another piece of the puzzle. Cummings had an annoying and nasty habit of cleaning his teeth with a toothpick. She seemed to recall another odd personal tick within Moe's testimony. She flipped through the pages until she came upon Moe's account of the abduction. Excessive Clearing of the Throat Mo had mentioned that the man who assaulted her cleared his throat multiple times. That in itself was not unusual. Sanchez pored over the other three cases. Two of the victims did not survive, but the third had. Sanchez focused on that case, reading every word of her statement. There was no mention of excessive throat clearing, so maybe it was a wrong hunch. Or maybe not. Sanchez picked up the phone and called the other victim. When that woman answered the phone, she introduced herself as a detective on her case and asked if she could just answer one more question. The woman agreed. Sanchez asked her to think very carefully before answering. She asked if she could remember any tick or nervous behavior from the man who assaulted her. The woman said no at first but then thought for a second before mentioning that the man itched his nose a few times and cleared his throat multiple times. Sanchez asked why she did not mention that before, and the woman told her it was because she didn't remember it until that moment. Sanchez thanked her for her help and hung up the phone. Now she had a nervous tick described by both living victims, which could lead to a suspect. She swung her chair to face her computer, which was behind her, and began typing furiously. She first entered all the knowns of her perpetrator, then checked with the National Crime Information Center, the state, and local databases. When nothing turned up, she used the Interpol database. Unfortunately, there was no known criminal matching the description she inputted, along with the nervous tick. But perhaps she was going about it all wrong, Perhaps he had no criminal record. But Sanchez knew that not having a record was not an indication of anything. It simply meant that they had not been caught yet. And even if there were a record, it was still an inaccurate indicator of their crimes. Then how would Sanchez locate him? All four victims lived within a five-mile radius. That was important. Perhaps the perpetrator lived or worked just outside the zone? She surmised that he probably worked in the area as he approached his victims during the day. Sanchez closed her eyes and concentrated on creating a visual image of the man in her head. Once she saw him as clear as day, she focused on his clothing, which meant he was a professional man. The profile said he was in management. Sanchez reopened her eyes and looked online for a business chamber of commerce within the five-mile radius of the attacks. There were two of them. She clicked on the link to the first website, then clicked on the tab which listed businesses registered with the chamber. She ran her finger down the screen, skipping over businesses which were not located within the area of interest. There was one carpet manufacturing company and one blacktop paving company. The blacktop paving company was listed as having only one owner using subcontractors for day labor. That did not fit the profile. The carpet manufacturing company was located within the five miles. She went to that company website link and studied their business site, looking for photos of executives. They must be listed under About Us, Sanchez thought. She clicked on that tab and was taken to a standard executive page with a small headshot to the left and a paragraph about the executive to the right. This company had ten executives listed, three of which were women. Four of the seven male executives were either too young or too old to be the suspect. Two other executives were in the correct age range, but were African American. That left only one. His name was Howard Bingham. Unfortunately, the photo of him used on the executive page was too grainy to make out. Sanchez copied the photo to her desktop, then enlarged the photo. Sanchez attached the photo to an email and sent it to their forensics lab. She wanted it analyzed and for them to reduce the noise of the image. In the meantime, Sanchez now had a name to attach to her hunch. She did a Google search for all Howard Binghams in her state and again added his name to all crime databases. Not one photo online resembled her suspect. She did, however, come across a YouTube video where someone had uploaded a video four years ago at a Christmas party for the carpet manufacturing company. It had no comments and six views with one upvote. Sanchez watched the 53-second video, pausing to take everything in, there was a normal butchering of Christmas song lyrics, along with glasses and plates clanking. But added to that, someone clearing their throat multiple times during the video. Sanchez replayed the video several times, counting the number of times the person off screen cleared their throat. She counted six. Six times in less than one minute. That was her man. A ding. She had a new message from forensics. They were able to remove the noise from the image she sent them. Must have been a new record. Six minutes. Six minutes was all it took to get a clear image of Howard Bingham. She punched his name into additional databases, including the traffic division and the Department of Motor Vehicles. Bingham had gotten a ticket for parking at an expired meter. His ticket was $79, which he paid promptly. She now had a vehicle description, license plate, and most importantly, his physical address. Sanchez summoned Cummings back into the room and spilled the details. He agreed that this might be the perp. Both detectives grabbed their jackets and rushed out the door. On the ride over to Bingham's home, they brainstormed on ways to get inside without an executed search warrant, as one would take a minimum of three hours to secure, and they did not have three hours. By Sanchez's calculations, Bingham could be out that very same day on the hunt for another victim. If Bingham was their man, he would be cautious, yet looking to avoid being seen as such. Perhaps they could knock on the door and say that they were investigating another unrelated crime committed in the neighborhood and wanted to ask him a few questions. They would then ask to be let in where they could get a better sense of the man. Sanchez drove as Cummings punched in a few numbers into the car's computer, which served as a database, radio, radar detector, and cell phone, He accessed the database of crimes committed in the county, then honed in on ones that happened surrounding Bingham's home. Cummings discovered a string of car break-ins in the area. They could use that as a ruse to the knock on Bingham's door. Sanchez drove past Bingham's listed address and spotted a vehicle in the driveway. It was a nondescript sedan with metal, not paper, plates. Sanchez parked around the corner and called in her location to dispatch before they exited the vehicle. The plan was to knock on neighbors' doors next to Bingham's first before proceeding to his. As they approached the neighbor's door, Cummings noticed someone peeking out from the curtains at Bingham's place. Cummings knocked on the neighbor's door. After a few moments, an elderly woman answered the door. They asked her a few questions about the car break-ins. That was the first she had heard of it. They excused themselves from her steps and proceeded next door to Bingham's home. Sanchez knocked on the door the way cops do, which was actually more of a pounding, letting the person on the other side know that this was someone of authority. They listened closely for any sounds of movement. After a brief moment, a voice from inside spoke without opening the door. How can I help you? Cummings placed his hand on his concealed revolver, which rode high and tight near his right hip as a front door creaked open. That's it. Join me next week for the final chapter, Chapter 13. Counterpunch can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, Google Play, and Kobo. Want to leave a voice message? Visit my Anchor.fm page, the link is in the show notes, and click on the button that says Message to leave me one. I just may use your voicemail in a future podcast. Want to suggest a show episode or get in touch? Visit me at AuthorUncut.com or send me an email at mailbag at patricewilliamsmarks.com And finally, to join our email list, go to AuthorUncut.com Until next time! right on